0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: So we're both women, right? Thank you so much for noticing. (laughs) (laughs) But, you
2: know, in Parliament House, that really very rarely happens. Two women in a room together is pretty rare. And over the last year, I've interviewed lots of female politicians, younger ones, older ones, all political parties. They had heaps of different opinions on pretty much everything, really. But there was this one thing, one thing, that almost all of them agreed on.
1: OK, well, you've got to tell me. The suspense is killing me.
2: So they said in meetings where they're the only woman in a room full of men, this really weird thing happens where... Sometimes they'll make a suggestion or, like, vocalise an idea and nobody sort of says anything. Like, they don't really react or seem to hear. And the woman thinks, oh, you know, that was a bit of a dud idea. Maybe that was stupid. Maybe I'm an idiot. And then, like, later on a bloke will say pretty much the same thing and suddenly everybody kind of hears it and away it goes. Like, we found this footage of Nancy Butfield who was this... South Australian senator from the 50s saying exactly that, but then, like Sarah Hansen-Young from the Greens, says the same thing today.
1: Oh, that it's, drives me nuts because I so know that feeling too. Right, do you? So does that has that happened to you? Absolutely, but I, I don't know if it's because, like, I'm quite an awkward person. And, um, really? I don't find you very awkward. Uh, you wouldn't. Um, no. <laughs> Well, because you're so elaborately weird. (laughs) No, no, because you make me feel really comfortable. But, like, in in jobs that I've had in the past, in writing rooms, green rooms, absolutely. Like, but I also, I think, am one of those women who feel intimidated by men, I think. So I naturally swallow my personality down. So I'm a lot different around men than I am around women. Right. That's interesting.
2: Mm. And so is it because, like, if you're in a room that's... Where like being male is the kind of most common kind of arrangement. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like you're kind of entering a game where the rules aren't necessarily written for you, and you've got to you've got to change yourself to fit in?
1: Yeah, I think um I don't I just don't understand the alpha. I've never been an alpha, hmm. and I think on paper people would think I was an alpha, <laughs> um, but I'm completely not. Because you're terrifying. Yeah, yes. Well, you know me. But yeah, I, I always find that with with men, I, I don't I don't understand male banter, and I don't want to get it wrong, <gasps> huh. and right. so I usually just get very awkward and very quiet. So,
2: a lot of these women, like who have had experience in politics, have like a million different versions of this situation, right, where they Mm. walk into a room where they are not the sort of person who is normally putting up good ideas in that room, right? Like, so they find all these ways to get around it. I was talking to uh, Roz Kelly, who was a Labor minister in the 80s. She was also the first woman to have a baby while serving in the federal parliament. She's like, there's lots of good stories about her, which I will share with you down the track. But she was the member for Canberra, right? And she told me the story about, as part of that job, she was a rugby league nut too. And she went to Rugby League HQ as the member for Canberra to lobby for a Canberra team to get in the league. And she's so when she sat down in this room for the meeting, she was the only woman in the room, and the guy said to her, Um, do you know what? This is the first time a woman's ever set foot in this room who wasn't cleaning it.
1: Oh, god, yuck, (laughs) yuck. See, I don't even know how to respond to that. Like, I couldn't be funny in that instance. Well, she says, Well, so I knew I had at
2: least two minutes to get their attention. So, like, it's about getting attention and, and like, getting the kind of, you know, hi, everyone's listening to me for these Mm. two minutes. And every woman, like, lots of women I've spoken to in politics have got their own way of kind of achieving that. But I wanted to set the scene for you as to what the cabinet was like in the 80s because, like, um, there was a woman called Susan Ryan who was the only woman in the Hawke cabinet for five years in the 80s. Like, it was an amazing cabinet, did lots of things. Oh, there was yeah. only a, one woman and she very sadly died last year. Mm. But there's a woman, um, Margaret Reynolds, who was a junior minister later on, and she had a few occasions to visit the cabinet, you know, to make submissions mm. for her portfolio. And I I'm going to play you her description
3: of what the Hawke cabinet was like, all right? Here we go. Well, I'm an old teacher And uh, I went into cabinet, I must have sat up all night reading my brief because I thought it would be serious and austere and I might get it wrong. And I went in and it reminded me of walking into a classroom of noisy (laughs) schoolboys. I mean, the behaviour and the language uh, was absolutely appalling. And I know that might sound a bit, you know, like Miss Prim, but... uh, If Cabinet was televised, the public would be absolutely amazed that anything good comes out of government.
2: Right, so, like, what intrigues me about that recollection is that she's up all night reading her briefs, right, Mm. and then she goes in there and it's totally feral. Like, so... (laughs) And this is what I, I hear from women all the time, that I I, I want to learn the rules, I want to do the work, I want to be better prepared than anybody else. And then they walk in and it's like, oh, it's like this. Well, nobody cares. <laughs> it's kind of chaos. So listen to her. She explains in this next little bit that I'm going to play you how decisions get made. And it's so weird, right, Like, because the way... Hawke used to preside over decision-making and use his power sometimes to do things that were good for Margaret Reynolds and women and whatever, but this is how he would kind of direct decision-making in that cabinet.
3: I mean, I used to always look for when Bob Hawke lit a cigar because uh, that usually... If I was presenting and there was a lot of talk and a lot of the laughter of why would I possibly want to do this or or that in terms of my portfolios, Bob would often just light a cigar and say, right, well, that seems a pretty good idea then. Everyone agree? And everyone would agree. I would have presented in an atmosphere that was scarcely supportive, apart from a few good people who would support you. Um, Bob would know that if there was a debate... It would go absolutely nowhere. So we'd light the cigar and say, "Everyone agree? Good. Thank you, Margaret. That was really interesting." And off I'd go. Isn't that just the most bizarre thing? Like the role of cigars in decision? Yes.
2: <laughs> so I was sort of listening to that, going, "What? Really? Just a cigar?" But like... this is what I mean about like the rules. Like people think that politics is governed by rules that you can learn, right? Mm. But actually, sometimes it's really subjective and weird. And in Mm. that case, Margaret's making a submission that's maybe about women and people are heckling her and not listening to, it's not, she's losing the room. But the leader is like, no, this is a good idea. Mm. And he's circumvented it by just, you know, light the cigar, get it done,
3: push Mm -hmm. it through,
2: which is like a crazy way of kind of making decisions as a group, right? It's so weird.
1: It, oh, it just makes me think of how much charisma and popularity does matter, Yeah, not, for the, not just for the sake of getting the votes in the first place, but yep. some people have that thing about them, right, where they can just bring together a group of people. Right. Yeah, and that- I don't know, and with a cigar. That's just really, that's just kind of weirdly made me like Bob Hawke. All
2: right, Well, I mean, I remember I once interviewed Craig Emerson, who was like later a Labor member of Parliament, but he used to be um, Bob Hawke's economic advisor. And, mm. you know, Hawke was a big gambler, like he was always on the punt. And he, um, Emerson told me this story about how there was a cabinet meeting once that Hawke went into, but he'd also placed like a massive bet on a horse race that was like at 11am or something right in the middle of cabinet. And so... Um, the horse actually won, and so Emerson had to go into the Cabinet to tell Hawke the good news, like, you've won all this money on this horse. <laughs> and then he reckons that, that at that point when he walked in to hand over the note with the good news, there was some minister who was on his feet arguing for funding for some new, like, science institute or something. Mm. It wasn't really going anywhere. But Hawke was so thrilled about the horse race that he's gone like, yep. Absolutely approved. So, like, I just always love that story because I think somewhere there is a science institution that only owes its existence to To a win on the horses that Bob was was thrilled about. You know, number five in race five coming home or (laughs)
1: like that. It's so yeah, but it's it's so much more human than you think as well, right? You know. Yep. I often um, you'll know this case. I can't remember the name of the case, but the one about is it the Ford Pinto? And the economic justification as a defence? No, but I'm loving it already. What's yeah. the Ford Pinto got to do with economic? Um, so uh, they, it was this new thing at the time. They put the engine in the back of the car. Oh yeah. But the way that they'd built it, if it got rear-ended, even right, it would blow up in okay. flames. Well, that sounds good. That's <laughs> good in a car. So it was like it was like you know same likelihood of getting in an accident, whatever. Right. But but just... if it got in an accident, it would severely maim or kill people. <laughs> okay. Right. And so they. There was this huge class action put out, obviously. right? And um, the people, for, like, this has always been this story to me that's gone, oh, my God, humans forget that they're humans when they work in groups, right? Right. That they're individuals. Do you know what I mean? Right. So when it got to court, they argued that they weren't going to recall right. the car yeah. because it was cheaper for them to pay people out and pay people's no. funerals and stuff than it was for them to recall the car. And he got thrown out, obviously. Yeah,
2: okay. That That's kind of like, sounds like a great argument, possibly on paper, right up to the point where you have to lock eyes right. with another human and actually exactly. say it. But <laughs> that's exactly
1: what I mean. Like, that's one of those ones where I go, imagine there was a group of people in a room yeah. that said... Yeah, well, it's just cheaper to do it this way because I think it's so easy to lose humanity when you're a group or something. But also, if you're a group of like-minded
2: people, you all mm. have had the same assumptions and maybe the same life experiences, Yeah, it's really easy to back, like for everybody to back themselves in and become absolutely unconscious as a group of the potential that other people might feel yes. differently, right? Yes, like- exactly.
1: And that's what, that's what I'm saying. Like when you recognize how human it is, mm. it makes the underlying sexism so insidious right? because you go, how can you not see this? But they're almost just a mouthpiece in that detachment or something.
2: Right. And if you're a member of the kind of not represented group Mm. that like walks in and joins this discussion, then the things that you do because you're unlike everyone else, mm. tend to be scrutinised more or reacted to differently. Yes. So, for instance, I just want to play you this by Penny Wong because, like, she walked into Parliament being unlike anyone else there because, mm. you know, she's Asian, she's lesbian. And, and a woman. Yeah, Trifecta. and a woman. So, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Anyway, and so what she has talked about is how it's difficult even to disagree with people, like men that she has arguments with, sometimes experience her disagreement with them Mm. in a different way from the way that they'll have an argument with a man. Like, to me, it's different. So have a listen to this.
4: I remember one senior Liberal saying to me after we'd had an altercation, he said, I don't know how to deal with women like you. I thought it was such an interesting thing to say. In what tone did he say that? No, he wasn't being aggressive at the time. Like We were sort of resolving something. But what it said to me was he didn't have a map to deal with women who disagreed with him. Wow. So what did you say? I don't remember what I said at that point. I think I felt like saying, "We well, better work it out. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was more polite than that. Wow. But, right? Well, you've
1: had a very long career and a successful career in a place that was at one time quite male-dominated, mm. not so much these days as much, really. Not so really. much these days. Um, how did you find that? Did you feel like you didn't get listened to? I think I was like,
2: exactly like a lot of these women that I talked to that Mm. were actually in politics. I went to Canberra as a journalist with the Adelaide Advertiser 20 years ago and I was like, I'm going to learn the rules of this place. I want to learn how it works. I want to learn. I'm going to be a sponge. I'm just going to soak things up and learn and then I'll get better. And I think that's how a lot of women move into that environment. They're like, I'm going to learn the rules. I'm going to work work it all out. Because I think as a woman going into that sort of environment, you never assume that it is that you've got a
1: right to be there. Mm. Like it's like a... It's like this weird apprenticeship or something. But even like the concept of an alpha male and an alpha female is vastly different. Oh, totally. Yeah, well, right. alpha males are allowed to be jerks, but you and can't, they also you can't can be, a bitch be if you're an alpha lady. Exactly, but they can also <laughs> be incompetent and have the confidence to pull it off. Oh, whereas 100%. If you're an alpha female, it's usually because you are the most successful, like hardcore, take no shit. That's what I imagine as an alpha female. Is
2: frequently the case. Listen, Amanda Vanstone, who was a minister in the Howard government, she was the first woman to be immigration minister. Howard made her education minister when he needed all this money cut out of education. So she was like, she was really like, you know, I will get my hands dirty and get in there. She's a very fascinating character. Um, And I want to play you her account of what she learned about how to
0: disagree with men in the Cabinet. One really good way to deal with people who are being difficult, and especially men, is to say, that's a really interesting idea. And you're thinking to yourself, because I don't know anyone as crazy as that. And then you say, I know a few other people who would also think that was a terrific idea. You haven't yet endorsed it yourself, but they don't know that because it's sounding good to them. (laughs) Before you make up your mind, and a guy's now thinking, she thinks I'm the mimsa, I'm the decision-maker. So all of this time he's thinking, she's really smart. You just might like Mm. to consider a couple of things people might raise because you wouldn't want them to cut you off at the pass. And at that point he'll say, well, what would they be? But if you did it the other way, the way I used to do it in the beginning which was, that's a ridiculous idea, you'll get killed. And, of course, no, no surprise, they don't come and say, oh, tell me more, tell me why I'm an idiot. Wow. <laughs> that is genius. How complicated is that, right? There's so many steps of
2: emotional intelligence involved there. <laughs> How she's learned <sighs> to disagree with men in a way that doesn't make them immediately shut down,
1: mm. right? But men are, men are more open to being shut down by men. Sure. But, you know, it's like uh, there was a... I watched this amazing series about a female detective and um, she was having an argument with a mm. male detective. She said, you need to learn how to deal with women or something. And, mm. and he goes, but women can be bitches or something like that. Right. And she goes, yeah. men are scared of women because they can be humiliated because women can humiliate them. Right. And she said, women are scared of men because you kill us. And it's like... <laughs> I mean, that's the stakes. But and the, but that is the reality, right? Men are scared of losing their status from women because of the programmed or the accepted societal norms of, of our hierarchy where we sit, you know, and mm. all of that stuff is so ingrained. Mm. I don't even think it's... It's not... Like, you can't... It's such a hard one because I go, they're not bad people mm. for having these ingrained beliefs that have always been there. right? It's just part of their world. But the reality is... That men can kill women, mm. and historically have right. But how weird that, like, conversely, the threat to them is of
2: humiliation. Yes, or, yeah.
1: Isn't that stark and scary to think about it?
2: It really is. Um, and I, I think this habit of women to kind of first put men at their ease. Mm. And then see what they can do. It's like a really ancient one. I heard an interview with Enid Lyons, who was the first woman to be in the House of Representatives in the 40s. And she said that her tactic, and like she really was the only woman in the room, like in the whole parliament, and um, well in the House of Reps anyway, but she um, said that she was careful always to ask men their opinion before offering hers so that she wasn't sort of threatening them or making it feel like she was displacing them in any way. So, like, there had to be this intense caution and awareness of what even your presence is doing to this environment. And, like, it's amazing to hear the lengths that they would go to to kind of keep these guys sort of at ease. And this question about, like, not being listened to when you give an idea the women that I've talked to in the last year, so many of them have got these quite evolved techniques for dealing with the situation where you know they are the only women in the room and they say something and it doesn't get heard. I like, and one of them is that you've got to like and a couple of them said this: you've got to sort of encourage the blokes to to think that it was their idea, like, and and you don't mm. actually go on to have a proprietary interest in the idea as long as that it's you know out and it's taken root, doesn't really matter who takes credit for it, which is unbelievable in a game like politics where everybody wants to be the author of The Good Ideas. Yeah. But um, I'm going to play you a little bit of Penny Wong talking about how she and her female colleagues um, have tried to take this on within the ALP. Of course it's happened to me.
4: It's kind of astonishing when it does. You sort of think, I just said that. Um, Much less so now. So I have a new approach to it which well reasonably you I wish I thought we you know we'd all thought about this earlier and I think it's something that Tanya Plibersek and Katie Gallagher and Christina Keneally and I have all done at different times and others in rooms and that is to name it yes as Christina had said or yes as Katie had said yes as Penny had said mm-hmm. yeah see this is why critical mass actually does matter Mm -hmm.
2: So once you've got a few more women in there, you start kind of backing each other in, even in circumstances where you don't necessarily agree with each other, just to kind of establish that audibility. Wow. But it's weird though, isn't
1: it? Like it's an amazing
2: kind of, imagine having to do that extra work on top of what is already a really hard job.
1: Yeah.
2: I think lots of women in like business and stuff do talk about this phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. but it's important to actually vocalise it, rather than just have it
1: as something that everybody quietly talks about. Yes. you know, in the like that women all know it, like right. women we all understand it. But it's yeah, it, it'd but be I good think, to bring it to the light of everyone.
2: I think men would be freaked out to find out how many yeah. women have that experience in
1: common. Okay, so Penny says critical mass does matter, mm. and that brings up a point: How do you get that critical mass? Right. This is like
2: a red hot question right now, isn't it? Because like if you go back to the mid-90s, which is like twenty-five years ago. Can I add up? Twenty-six years ago. <laughs> Just like So at that time both the major parties were pretty um well actually the Liberal Party was was ahead on women's numbers in the parliament. Yeah. Cause like they did quite a bit of work in the mid nineties to get more women to run. And so in nineteen ninety-six they had like the best crop of women in history, like most women. And they were at about something like 25, 26% of their parliament really? contingent was women. Okay. And the Labour Party was like something like 19%, like behind. Mm. And then they actually, the Labour Party decided to install quotas, like a certain proportion of our candidates in winnable seats will be women. It was a kind of controversial decision and not one that the Liberal Party endorsed at all. Mm. And if you look at what's happened in the intervening quarter of a century, like it's taken a long time to turn around, but the Labor Party is now at about nearly 50-50, like they're at 48 or 49%. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Since when? What? Yeah. Where have I been? Well, this is after you lost interest in politics yeah. at no, university, no, right? right? Like. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so Absolutely. they're actually at about 49-50%. Mm. Um, and right now, by the way, The Senate has more women in it than men. Wow. Yep, 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 yep. So, like, I mean, things have changed. Yeah. But the Liberal Party's actually gone backwards from the mid-'90s and so that's why you've got this kind of like the Prime Minister said that he's sort of actually not opposed to gender quotas, which is a pretty massive thing for a Liberal leader to say because generally as a party they are not into quotas. But, like, here's the thing that always absolutely puzzles me about the big argument against quotas, which is, do you know what? We should be recruiting for merit, not, Mm. you know, gender. But if your concept of merit is you have a very exclusive or like traditional idea of what merit is and where good ideas come from, then you already do have a gender quota. It's just a male gender quota. So yeah. It's really interesting. Even the people who aspire to go into politics often do so because they see people like them already in there, okay? Yeah. Because it's we're all humans. We look around us and we see what's everyone else doing? Yeah. What seems possible for me? If you look at Parliament or Cabinet or whatever and you think and you see that it's full of, let's say, blokes and you're a bloke, you think that is an option for me. Of course, yeah. But if you don't see people like you, then you don't kind of mentally think that that's an, an option for you, right? Like, and that is the deeply complex part of this idea of critical mass. And the only way really to change perceptions of who belongs in this job and who should be in it is to change the numbers, right? Like sometimes I think the numbers
1: have got to... Quotas do my head in. I mean, as an Indigenous woman, I often get on bills... Because I am the diversity, right? Like right, I will be okay. the diversity. Oh, and they are like, what's wrong with this lineup? Mm, looks oh, a well, it's a very bit white, white and male stuff. Yeah, they go, no, we don't have to book two. Um, oh, <laughs> oh, right. You know, um, but right. I think um, quotas really get to me because the the downside of quotas is, is that they are always used against the person who is part of the quota. And I think it is the most disempowering thing. I I think even just the concept of it, it's such a fine line. It's so important, but Mm. it's incredibly disempowering because if you feel like all you are is a number or, you know, a token or something to even things out then even though that's not the case mm. and even though you're working towards uh, equity and even though it's a meritocracy, you know, mm. it's based off your merit, like there will always be that argument. And you know that people are saying that about you, right? Yes. Like Like that's the, yeah. Yes. But I mean like
2: I think one of the issues is that people kind of really confuse these two issues of merit and, you know, gender or whatever, like that you could, you've got to have one or the other.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. Like
2: the, what made me really think about this recently was when I went to see Hamilton, right, like the musical. Yeah. Because in Is Australia, it it's so good. <laughs> but, like, you know when Lin-Manuel Miranda put it on in New York for the first time and he said, look, I'm going to cast this musical and I'm only going to use people of colour. Like, yeah. that, we're going to tell this foundation American story and we're going to have it told by people of colour, right? Mm. Because that's not the way it's happened through history. Mm. And so when they brought the production here they adopted that casting policy, right? Mm. We're only going to have people on co- of colour on stage. Yep. So it's like an ultimate quota arrangement, right, like you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the cast that they put together, casting from this, like, much smaller casting pool than you mm. would normally be casting in if you were putting on a massive, expensive yeah. musical in Australia, the quality of this group of people is unbelievable, right? Like, yeah. So there's no kind of, like... Oh, look, we had to choose between these like crop of talentless people. I think the idea that like talent or merit only occupies like a small bunch of amazing, gifted people, and like unbelievably coincidentally, they all seem to have penises like, is not amazing. You can't
1: cut that that pool down otherwise. Oh, wow, what would happen?
2: But that thing that you Mm. think, I don't want anyone to think that I only got here on the basis of my skin color or gender or whatever. How many of the, you know, 96% of ASX 200 company CEOs who just happen to be men lie awake worrying about that same thing? Exactly. I wonder if I only got this job because of this penis. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd hate for them to feel bad about that. <laughs> You're so wise. Oh, yeah, I'm a real owl. You are, you little owl. <laughs> Al crab, crabby al, crabby al. Yeah, that's my. That's actually my Twitter handle. <laughs> the one that I use to troll people. I don't. I don't it's not true. It's not true. <laughs> I want to finish off with just a story that I find like incredibly cheering and hilarious, and it, it, it features the Margaret Reynolds who earlier on told us about how weird the hawk cabinet was, yeah. because she and the handful of other women that were in the caucus at the time used to have all of these. Things that they would do in secret to either encourage their male colleagues who were, like, allies or to discourage
3: or criticise their male colleagues who went up to scratch. I'll let her tell the story. We each had one or two or three ministers that we shadowed. One was we had a, a good one and we praised him for all the good things he was doing. The other one was a not-so-good one and we used to contact the electorate office and complain about the fact that he wasn't interested in women's issues or wasn't doing certain uh, certain policy work we thought and of course the electorate office assumed that we were official people from out in the electorate when, in actual fact, we were just the core status of the committee. Mm. But that worked very well. We so were, were you putting on funny voices? Or? Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, we did that quite regularly because there were some of the men who were very supportive and very good and we felt that if we, we needed to praise them to keep them, you know, on track, but we also felt it was important... To let uh, the electorate office of various uh, ministers know that there were women out there not happy with them, but of course they didn't know it was only us.
2: <laughs> so uh, did you have did you have made up names that you would? Uh... Oh yes,
3: yes, we had made up names.
2: What was your name? Can you remember?
3: Oh, I have no idea. I have no idea.
2: I love her. <laughs> Just. Like... Just the thought of them all hitting the phone tree. Hello, it's barrel string bags from the eastern <laughs> area of your electorate. I'm very unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> Coordinating them, uh, or you're doing an excellent job, Ian. You're you're marvellous. We love you in this electorate. It's, it's, it's calling from the office next door. <laughs> isn't that crazy? <laughs> but I just I don't know. These stories are sort of funny, and I love hearing them. Just recount the crazy lengths that they'll go to
1: oh, yeah.
2: to smooth their own path and the path of their ideas yeah. in a place that's still not quite ready for them yet. And, like, God, I'm grateful to them all. I just think thank you for doing all that mm. weird shit. Like it's just very, yeah. you know, thank you for putting in that extra work to just make it a bit easier for the...
1: That is the most important thing, though, yeah. is gratitude. And also faith that we can do the same yeah. Again, I think I think history is very good for an optimist even though it might seem the opposite, right? Yeah, totally. I'm an absolute idealist optimist.
2: Yeah, I'm an optimist too, I think. Cuz like humans hardly ever get it right, but like if we if we're doing it right, we're getting closer to
1: um You mean if we're doing it wrong, we're getting closer to doing it right? Or
2: No, I mean like if um If we're doing human experience right, Mm. then we're learning from people around us and from stupid things that people have done in the past and trying to avoid those mistakes and build on the good stuff that people found out before us. Well, then
1: let me say to you, as somebody who's been in the industry for 20 years, Mm. thank you for all of the headway that you've paved and for doing a series like this that shines a light.
2: Oh, look, this is, a, this is a massive lady mutual appreciation society. <laughs> I love you. Right. I love you, crabs. <laughs> I will see you next time. Absolutely. See you then. There are so many stories about women in Parliament from the last 100 years, and we cover some of them in this podcast and we cover more of them in the Misrepresented TV show. You can binge the whole lot on iview right now.